but let's get started. So I've, you know, I launched a Substack, so you can subscribe to that for free if you're able to subscribe to it for a yearly subscription. I think it's like $70 a year. So I think that's a little over $5 a month total, but it would be a one-time payment for $70 for the year. <clears throat> you can catch that all in the description, but I have been publishing quite frequently because I definitely, first of all, I definitely appreciate Substack's format. I'm kind of late to the game, but it definitely is more user-friendly. A subscriber was uh, really encouraging in terms of getting it started. And so I appreciate you all for supporting my work and helping motivate me, honestly, to engage in some of these platforms. Of course, I understand the contradictions with Substack. There is a gig economy effect, just like all of these platforms that independent journalists are trying to use. But nonetheless, we appreciate your support. I appreciate your support. And so I've been publishing quite frequently on there. I'm trying to make sure that it aligns with the Patreon. And my last few articles, I think, will be the topic of today's live stream. You know, <clears throat> first and foremost, there's been a lot of conversation of this movie, Don't Look Up. So I had to watch it. I mean, first of all, I'm not much of a pop culture person. I am kind of in my personal life, but, and I do, actually, that's not true. I've, I've commented on it quite a bit, right, in my writing and in my analysis. But lately, I just have not had the time. I haven't really been engaging with any kind of public political analysis of pop culture as of late. But when Don't Look Up came out, you know, with David Sirota's participation in it, Adam McKay and the Bernie sort of wing of the Democratic Party, really excited about it because of their direct participation in it. I had to see what was up because I've been saying this for a while, but the Bernie sort of wing of the Democratic Party seems confused right now, very much in a state of political stagnation, ideological stagnation. Defeat is tough. And when defeat was inevitable in the jaws of the Democratic Party, I think there has been a real whiplash effect where the Bernie wing of the Democratic Party doesn't want to split. They don't want to detach themselves from this electoral apparatus, this corporate apparatus completely. But yet the method, right, the strategy of attempting to carve out space within a corporate party directly hostile to your interests doesn't work either. So it's this kind of limbo effect that we're seeing, which I think just speaks to the greater political decay of the system that we are undergoing and really there's nothing more indicative of this than don't look up so i'm going to share my screen to pull up the article i'm not going to read it word by word you know i'm definitely not going to do that but i'm going to go over some key points i i generally i'll probably make this into an audio segment because i have in the past for subscribers to my patreon i have in the past made articles in audio format and i since the holidays especially it's kind of around since thanksgiving i haven't been able to do this because of all the travel managing family stuff and then also managing writing it just wasn't in the cards and also managing this program but Generally, that's something I try to do. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to review these articles. I'm going to analyze. I'm going to talk about them. And then I'll make this into an audio format as well so folks can listen to it. So I'll put that up on Substack and on Patreon. And you guys 
can listen to it publicly as well. So let me actually just turn my computer a little bit so I can uh, see it a little bit better. Hold on one second. All right, that's a lot better. So let me just share the screen. So don't look up. Let's let's talk about it. I <clears throat> I was excited to watch it because I mean I, for me I, I just really I'm actually really into this state of stagnation that the Bernie wing of the Democratic Party is in because it's the reality and no one's saying it right. There's been a lot of critique of the squad. There's been a lot of, um, hold on one second. So there's been a lot of critique of the squad. There's been a lot of anger with Bernie Sanders, but no real analysis of why. Why is this phenomenon such an utter failure at this moment? And the excitement that was generated out of it, right? You do have a new kind of generation of young people who are very motivated to do something and are actually very curious in socialism, right? That's a very good thing. But no one's analyzing why the Bernie wing of the Democratic Party seems to be paralyzed, seems to be unable to detach themselves from the Democratic Party and organize a real political vehicle, an alternative to it, in order to forward the interests of the working class and why it just doesn't seem like the squad or Bernie Sanders is able to do anything. I mean, it it's so obvious that the squad and Bernie Sanders are, are hampered by a hostile capitalist apparatus, the state, that the stage of capitalism that we're in really has necessitated and required a, a deep level of political and economic repression so that endless austerity and war are the only pathways forward for this system. And I think as we go along in this new year and into subsequent years, it's going to be so important to look at this current historical moment objectively to detach ourselves from this celebrification, right, of Bernie Sanders or the squad or anyone else in the Democratic Party and look at why these forces are ultimately not just incompetent, but really sheepdogging people into the Democratic Party and strengthening and be making this system more effective by channeling all of this massive frustration and this growing progressive and leftist sentiment into what is the political graveyard of the left. That is the Democratic Party, and that's been the history. And this was known well before, and we'll get into this later, well before 2016, 2020, well before those elections. This, this was just fact, but yet the strategy has been the same, and it's one that doesn't seem like it's going to be abandoned. But nonetheless, Let's go into the article, shall we? So don't look up. I, I Personally, I enjoyed Don't Look Up. I thought that it was relatively well done. It had, did have its lull periods. I was a little bored, I must say, around the two-thirds period. I think it really dragged out the climax, right, the end. Um, 
there it, it was very hollywood right so you have the romance aspect of it so you have right uh, leonardo DiCaprio's character dr mindy he cheats on his wife and this sort of thing and he becomes a big celebrity i actually enjoyed that from a hollywood perspective from a political perspective it made very little impact but i think overall right as i say here don't look up really does reflect the cynicism of capitalist decay for better and for worse so this film does offer some insight into the crisis of the system that we live under right it literally is about an apocalyptic end with for humanity which is not necessarily out of the cards right we can call that pessimistic but i think that's just realistic that there are both military environmental and economic threats to humanity we just had we're literally in the midst of a devastating pandemic there are going to be more the climate change situation which this movie is supposed to be a metaphor uh, for is very grave as well and of course we have the possibility of the u.s being such a warmongering imperialist state mobilizing in a way in a state of crisis depending on how things go in the next 5 10 15 years we may see another nuclear situation because of how rapidly desperate the u.s is to maintain its hegemony so nonetheless this capitalist decay that's reflected in the movie does have some helpful insights right in the way that the pentagon she i think it's the pentagon general is portrayed in the movie the way that the president who's played by meryl streep is portrayed in the movie there are some helpful insights into just the callousness the greed and the utter right the utter in insufferable exploitation and how that exploitation is then reflected in how the ruling class behaves right how the intense drive for profit is indeed uh, influential on political behavior social behavior and we see that in the film so there's a really big debate about this film as i talk about in the article that we have people on the progressive side of the political spectrum trying to shake liberals neoliberals and shake all the critics and say hey this movie is honest this is what the situation is if we don't address climate change we're all going to die this film does a great job in portraying this right and establishment politicians and corporate donors in the film really do lack interest and are opportunistically searching for ways to both avoid the crisis and profit from it and and the state is brutal right so the uh the young woman here oh what is her name i forget the character's name now but she uh she is really the one who discovers this she's a phd candidate and she is oh warning this is spoiler alert so if you don't if you don't want to hear this i'm sorry but there are some spoilers <laughs> so anyway in the film uh, she is the one who discovers the comet who's going to, that's going straight towards earth and 
she is kind of like a millennial who is very idealistic. She is more political than Dr. Mindy, her teacher, right? There's some generational commentary there. He's kind of like Generation X or whatever. And she's a millennial who is really concerned about the injustice of everything. And she's getting burnt out. And she's she's the one who's targeted, though, right? She's taken away by the FBI on several occasions because of how she leaked the secrets of the comet after they had this secret meeting with the president and her entourage. So she's, I think, supposed to represent sort of like the idealistic Bernie wing of, of the party. Um, so, you know, the state violence is, is brutal, right? Towards her. I mean, it's not so brutal, but she gets kidnapped a couple of times and it's obvious that the government is seeking to, to hush her, you know, to silence her. Kate Dibiaski. Sorry about that. So that, that's the character, Dibiaski. And it's named after her, the Dibiaski comment. So, you know, celebrity culture is a big theme in the film. What's her face? Oh, man, I can't stand her. So I always forget her name. Ariana Grande, right? She's in the film and she represents sort of this ultra celebrity culture in the corporate media. There's a lot of commentary about how it really is just tabloid. There's an avoidance of the discussion of real pressing problems. Some people interpreted this as incorrect because the corporate media was almost like a joke, like it was just some talk show 24-7 news reporting, which in some ways I think there was more accuracy to this film's depiction than not. But I could see where there was an underplay. There was almost like a downplaying of how the corporate media actually does spread fear, like intense fear in the population and is really just interested in war, spreads the Pentagon's message, spreads the CIA's message. There was a real underplaying of that, a minimization of that, right? It was all just like, oh, we're going to talk about celebrity stuff all the time. And that's just, that, that really isn't completely honest. Yes, celebrity culture dominates the corporate media in a huge way, but there is a political agenda that is forwarded through all of it, both the celebrity culture and also the way that news is reported. And I don't have to go into all the reasons why that is. We know, we know that the intelligence apparatus is embedded in places like MSNBC, corporate media outlets like CNN, that national security correspondents for all of these outlets, the big five, the big six media outlets, all come from Washington, D.C. They all come from the military-industrial complex and the military state. That doesn't need to be repeated. But there's been a lot of negative reviews of this film. The corporate media came down hard on it. Rotten Tomatoes, all the corporate media reviewers came down really hard on it. They called it complaining and pessimistic and uh, made some points that I think could be exploited. It, it's important to understand this, that there are some points that the corporate media made that could, that they did exploit that have some truth to them, but not completely. Right. So, you know, the, the most ironic one is that CNN, MSNBC, some all these corporate media outlets, at one point they tried to hearken on was how this film looks upon the masses as kind of dumb and stupid and without hope and they're unable to see the light and, and get their head up. And so that kind of demonizes the voting bloc that voted for Trump. And 
ironically, that's exactly what the Democrats have done, right? They've called Trump voters stupid. They've called them every name in the book, including Russian assets, and have deplorables, all of those things, and have basically said that they're irredeemable. And now I have my own analysis, right? I have voting blocks or voting blocks in there. That's not a class analysis. So no doubt the Trump supporting population and the Democratic Party supporting side of the population have deeply troubled ideological worldviews. And both of them are propagandized to the point where they literally worship one side of the duopoly or the other which means they worship corporate interests, which means they don't have the interests of the working class at heart in the final analysis, even if some of them are bamboozled into thinking that Trump or Hillary Clinton, or whoever it is, Joe Biden, really are for their interests. Nonetheless, in the final analysis, their political behavior shows that there is a real lack of knowledge and uh, also ideological coherence to understand exactly what situation we're in. And also there are a lot of voters, both in the Trump side, Republican Party side and the Democratic Party side, who enjoy this. This is their well-being. This is their material reality. They actually are voting for their interests, even if it's cognitive dissonance. But in a lot, and for a lot of these folks, it's not cognitive dissonance. Trump tax cuts, Trump wars, Biden tax cuts, Biden wars, you know, it doesn't matter who's at the helm. There's a significant section of the population that is okay with the policies that are being enacted. And I think that's something that we haven't reckoned with. While we do have vast majorities who want to see climate change addressed, which is what this movie was in uh, kind of in, uh, in response to, even though I think it did a poor job of showing that. I think that there's also a cognitive dissonance in the United States where politics are so anti-communist, they're so uh, hyper-capitalist, so neoliberal, so neoconservative. Uh, we really are living in this total hegemonic decay of the empire that indeed, I mean, look at the Bernie wing of the party. They're not forming a peace movement right now, right? They're not calling for the nationalization of every damn thing that we need to nationalize in order, including the banks, in order to uh, really resolve the crises at hand. And they're not calling for the power necessary of the people to make that happen. And, and that just shows how uh, far we are from a socialist, a real socialist movement. And so I think that's the starting point. And that's sort of where I was thinking when I was watching this movie. I was like, oh, yeah, this is an accurate reflection of where so-called progressives are, right? They're still very much liberal because there's no hope for the people. Anyway, we'll get to that. But in the article, I talk about how the corporate media was attacking it. MSNBC <laughs> took issue with the film's portrayal of the corporate media. And took issue in particular with how the corporate media was portrayed in the movie as not following important issues. <laughs> and so this is just how arrogant the corporate media is. It's like, oh, no, we actually do follow important issues. And the movie didn't do a good job about showing how the corporate media is political, right? We saw we see this with Russiagate and the obsessive coverage over that. We've seen this 
with so many uh, stories, right? Rittenhouse, we can go on and on and on, right? There is a political agenda at hand with the corporate media. So, you know, I think the the movie did do something right to really get a backlash from the corporate media and the ruling class in this way. And I think it's because it does embarrass the elite. Some people have said that the president in the film played by Meryl Streep represents just Donald Trump. And yes, with the sun and the cabinet and all of this, there is indeed a huge Trumpian element to it. And that is a limitation of the film. But there were some attempts, I think, with sort of the play on identity reductionism, right, with her being a woman and how much she focused on image and marginalized groups and trying to get representation. I think there was some play on the Democratic Party as well. Now, it was minimal comparison to the Trump comparison. So I indeed do think that's a negative aspect of this. But when you look at like Peter Ishawell, who's this big capitalist, a bash cellular, this monopoly that I think is supposed to represent Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and all of the tech capitalists, Bill Gates, all in one person. It, it really was, I mean, he was great. The guy who played Ishawell was was really on point in terms of how narcissistic and how sociopathic the ruling class is, where you end up in the movie seeing how every ruling class response to this crisis is all about crisis management and then about how do we profit from it to kind of hearken on Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine, which talks all about how privatization and all of these policies of austerity really do capitalize on crises. And so this was certainly a demonstration of the self-serving behavior of, of the ruling class. And I think that was the strength of the film. But the film was liberal in political character, painfully liberal in a lot of ways. And that's the thing that I dislike the most about it. So Adam McKay, actually, uh, someone shared with me a Twitter thread where he goes on and on and on about what he thinks is the solution to the climate crisis. And I'm just going to show you here what he says in the first part of the thread. I'm not going to read it all. It's not really worth it. But, you know, awareness, will, and action. And then he goes on to say that we need to build all these labs in order to study climate change. And it's like, what? You know, you make this whole film about the urgency of the moment, which if you think about a comet heading towards Earth that's going to hit in six months, I don't think a lab is going to solve that. So if you're looking at climate change and thinking, okay, we have about 10 years before the climate is irreparably destroyed for humanity and for most living things on the planet, then I think we need more than labs and uh, awareness, right? I, I think the awareness is actually there. And so this is where liberals have a hard time because they don't understand the importance of organization. They don't have really any faith in the masses of people. They don't put people first, right? They put personalities first. They put political agendas first, but they don't put the people first. They don't put masses of people first. They really do have a hard time looking at working class people and seeing them as engines of political change. That's why you have all of these sort of... Uh, windows into right these studies these almost ethnographies of the working class that liberals put out they show you nickel and dimed for example they'll show you right um what it's like to be a working class person how 
poverty is so terrible and how, you know, you'll get this, right? 13th, the documentary. Oh, my God, mass incarceration, so terrible, so racist. But then the, when it comes to solution, it's like, well, what are you doing? Well, they're not going to call for prison or prison organizing. They're not going to call for masses of people to organize to take power over the state, right? Because no, no. And the film's focus on the protagonists being academics and scientists and them kind of being the only saviors that we have in the climate change issue, I think also shows a weakness because, well, certainly when it comes to science, right, we do need experts, we need scientists, we need academics. Mind you, in the United States, most academics and scientists and all of that work for bourgeois institutions, which heavily in, are heavily influenced by money, heavily influenced by corporate endowments, heavily influenced by foundation money, which are sponsored by corporations. And so the interests of these institutions, of course, usually lean, if not entirely, fall toward the ruling class. But nonetheless, we do need people studying this thing. And that's not to say that scientists haven't done really important work in uncovering this from all over the world, scientists everywhere, right? From the US to China to Germany, everywhere, there's been scientists, Turkey, everywhere, scientists are studying this problem. And But to, to claim that they're going to be the political actors, which will transform the situation is ridiculous, right? And I think this is part of the reason why liberals really love someone like Greta Thunberg is because they can say, hey, Greta Thunberg, Look at her. She's an individual. She's doing all this stuff. She's so powerful. She's a young woman, young girl. And oh, guess what? She has a movement behind her, right? But they're not interested in steering that movement in the correct direction. And that's the role of the communist uh, movement. That's the role of communists, of socialists. Our job is to steer the movement in the right direction. And that's why we make criticisms of don't look up for its inability to understand how anything that we do is a reflection of politics, mirrors politics. We cannot avoid the fact that climate change, it would, no matter how much we analyze it as this huge problem and understand it as this huge problem, unless we forward an alternative and build power among ordinary people who are struggling just to damn survive in the United States and around the world, right? We are ravaged by war, and the most brutal forms of capitalist exploitation and of state repression, unless we organize, unless we educate, then we ultimately will never come up with a political program that can galvanize people and create the institutions that we need to really overthrow this system. And liberals don't want to overthrow this system, so they portray people like and don't look up as just dumb they don't understand they can't understand they're so distracted and i find that to be a little bit of a cop-out right it really does allow the ruling class to claim victory here and that's why the corporate media was able to drag this film right they were able to drag it drag it drag it because i think there was an understanding that this film may not hit the movement right it may not hit people who are already there in a way that moves them forward. It'll just kind of keep them in place. Yes, we know the ruling class is bad. Yes, we know climate change is a disaster. And oh, yes, we also know the movement isn't where it needs to be right now. So we'll just kind of leave the theater or the stream or wherever we were watching and say, all right, on to the next day, right? It's not really going to, it's not really an agitational film. It doesn't really get us to do something concrete. 
so awareness is privileged, right? That's all there is. And it's a cynical message uh, because it shows that powerful elites are really both the root of the problem and also the only possible solution, right? Their behavior, changing their behavior is the only solution. But guess what? They fly away in a spaceship when the world is destroyed anyway. So you get the message that you can't do that either. So you got nothing. That's a dangerous message, right? And that, that's a real critical issue that I have with the film. Um, and it makes sense, right? So I put this into context. The U.S. left has been violently suppressed by the state. There has been a consolidation of the elites around a program of endless austerity and war, which produces unprecedented levels of despair and alienation. And we know that movements across the board from Black Lives Matter, the environmental movement, Occupy Wall Street, uh, they've been unable to arrest the race to the bottom. Uh, but there has been a, a big shift in consciousness, which wasn't acknowledged in, in the film, uh, nor were the successes of these movements, however critical we are of them, the successes of those movements in really energizing a new generation of activists to, to fight it. And we didn't get that. It was just kind of Dibiaski had her cynicism. She was alone. There was no one else. And it was all about this celebrity kind of culture social media culture. And, and, I, and I'm all for critiques of that because we do spend too much time on social media. We aren't doing all the practical work we need to do. But I think it's a cop-out to blame people for that, to, to really not be able to show how that's not the principal contradiction here. The principal contradiction is how the economic situation and the levels of disorganization based on repression and just the sheer desperation of the economic situation, how that is all kind of coming together to produce a really reactionary political environment. That's really what needs to be emphasized here. So I talk about in the article how history is full of examples and the, mo the movie doesn't talk about history at all of how the working class movement and the movement of oppressed people has produced really incredible change, like the Russian Revolution, which... If there was no Soviet Union, there would be no welfare state across the West in the United States. The United States and the West responded to the labor, the militant communist movement and the labor movement, which existed at that time during the 30 years crisis, responded to it, not only by going to, you know, participating in World War II for the booty of the colonies in order to raise the standard of living. That was a huge part of it as well. We cannot negate that. But a lot of the pressure for the ruling class to enact a welfare state of any kind in the West and in the United States was because the Soviet Union exists and the Soviet Union was already doing these things, right? The right for women to vote and politically participate in society, child care, uh, social security, full employment. These things were what the Soviet Union had been doing under wartime conditions. And it had actually led to a massive growth in the economy. The Soviet Union, by the end of world, by the end of I think 1950, was the second largest economy in the world, despite being destroyed not once but twice in imperialist world wars. That was a huge threat to the U.S. and the Western capitalist order. But no mention of the world. Uh, we'll get into the world situation in a little bit. But I talk about the Black Liberation Movement from Reconstruction, you know, the, the rebellions of Africans 
against slavery, culminating in Reconstruction. That was the first example of a people's movement in the United States, really, that set up an actual people's democracy and also increased the standard of living for Black people immensely, right? Despite all the repression and all the setbacks, by 1970, Black people were doing a lot better in the United States than they were doing in 1870. So... You know, Social Security, Medicare, the right to form a union, all of this was because of movements, because of communists, really, because of socialists, because of people uh, led mainly by the Black Liberation Movement and, and at the attendant movements that challenged power. And they, so it can't happen. And it wasn't that long ago, right? So the fact that there wasn't any of this in the film, the fact that move, the movements were marginalized in the film, Don't Look Up did what I think is a really awful thing which is to marginalize the movement in such a way to kind of mock it, right? Just this hashtag, don't look up. Everyone is doing it, and then it's too late, right? It's too late. Don't look up, it's too late. I found that to be a really unfortunate part of the film because it almost mocked social movements rather than try to empower them. And so I'm just going to conclude on this because I've talked a lot about the film thus far. I just want to say that one of the most frustrating things about the Bernie wing of the Democratic Party and all the social democratic movement across the West is its loyalty to imperialism, its inability to express any kind of global solidarity that can really bring us forward in the working class movement not understanding that the history of the working class movement in the United States and the West is really nothing without global solidarity. It really is nothing without the global socialist movement. That without those two things together, all of the things that social Democrats celebrate, as I mentioned before, social security, all of those things, they wouldn't exist. There would be no external pressure for those things to exist. And I think that it just shows how anti-communism is so steeped in the political culture and ideological culture of the United States, that even a film like this, which didn't even have to if it wanted to, I would have rather they ignored the international situation. But even just the small references to it equated countries around the world, mainly China, as being just as incompetent and just as cynical and opportunistic as the United States. And so some people took issue with my analysis of this because Partly it was a small reference. There was a few references, very small, not really large in nature, didn't take up any of the film. If you weren't paying attention closely enough, you might have missed it. But, you know, there's a part in the film where it's said by uh, the president's staff that there, uh, no, I think it was actually by Dr. Mindy and, and Dibiaski and, and, and the folks working with them in this movement, the Don't Look Up movement, they say something to the effect of, well, Russia, India, and China have tapped out of um, any kind of collective cooperation with the United States because they were cut out of a mining deal, right? And that's because Bash in Cellular, the big monopoly, was looking to extract minerals, right? All of these minerals for technology, which would, as the capitalist Ishawell says, would bring humanity to this new stage of existence when the literally the existence of humanity was less than a few months away from being annihilated altogether. But nonetheless, 
China, Russia, India were said to, you know, when they were cut out of a deal economically, they were done. And I found that to be just so cynical in so many waves. Uh, but the second reference before I move on to why this is just so heinous is there was a reference toward the end of the film of a President Xi, which obviously is a reference to President Xi Jinping of China. So as Bash Cellular is failing in its mission to both extract the minerals and to move the comet because they tried to combine the two objectives as they're failing, right? As their drones are exploding and the comet just remains intact on its trajectory. That is the notice that is given to the memo that is given to the president and it's President Xi of China saying that it's President Xi of China reporting to the world that the U.S. has failed, right? So it's almost like this China capitalizing on the U.S.'s failure failure by reporting it to the world. Others, I think, had some, uh, based on the international depiction, others had different interpretations. Not sure how you can interpret it any differently other than China, Russia, India. I mean, India is kind of a separate case, but China, Russia, India, they are big powers, but they're also both incompetent and they're not ready for this moment either. So to me, that's a clear ideological concession to American exceptionalism. It shows that the U.S. elite is really the only game in town, right? And how dangerous of a message is that? So I talk about in the article how the facts of life, the material conditions, the reality, they tell a different story. If we just look at China, how China is a leader in renewable energy and is going to become carbon neutral by 2060, which would be the fastest path to carbon neutrality, no matter if the United States and the West claim 2050. Still, given China's industrialization path, which really didn't start really since until 70 years ago, but we could really trace that more like 40, 50 years ago. If we look at that, that fact, then it becomes all too clear that the U.S. and the West have actually gone a much slower route to carbon neutrality and China is really killing it. It's, it's going at a pace that's unprecedented in history, and that's because of its capacity to produce renewables and to take real policy action, not just to implement renewables and say that's it. No, it's doing it in a planned way so that people's needs as well as the needs of the environment go hand in hand as best that they can in a very difficult world situation. And so that's not acknowledged, right? Because China is literally the world leader in the production of this stuff that we need to transition um, and also meet the needs of masses of people. But there we are. And there's no acknowledgement that in China or in Russia, in many respects, although Russian opposition on the right is certainly, I'm sure, has climate denialism in there. But there's not a really a political faction with any power in China that denies climate change. And it's just so interesting that given the fact that China is surrounded by one of the biggest polluters on the planet, the U.S. military with more than half of U.S. bases creating this kind of noose, as John Pilger described it. 
despite the sanctions, diplomatically and economically, despite all of this, even sanctions on a major solar producer in Xinjiang that Biden put into place, I think that was in March during that disastrous March 2021 period. Maybe it was a little before that. But despite all of this, China has pushed forward on the climate issue and is helping regions of the world, Africa, uh, Latin America, with renewable energy. It is actually stepping up its trade in green energy. And the Beijing 2022 Olympics is going to be an incredible display of what China's renewable energy capacity is able to do when it is under the direction of a planned socialist market economy. So there's also no evidence that China is opportunistic in the way that it deals with any major planetary crisis. Just look at COVID-19. China has saved 950,000 lives with its zero COVID policy that has been dragged through the media. But the results are there. Less than 5,000 deaths due to COVID. Omicron is uh, relatively controlled. Uh, they're still dealing with the Delta variant, actually. But uh, despite some outbreaks like in Xi'an happening right now, the death situation, the case situation of COVID in China is by far superior to what's happening in the United States. Uh, China's literally doing 800 times better to the point where you have articles like in Forbes recently trying to make up numbers out of whole cloth saying actually 1.7 million people died in China and given economist estimates from, from the economist with no proof, no evidence. It's only this kind of crass racism, this demeaning yellow peril racism that assumes the worst of China so that we can't learn from this incredible response, this intent, this incredibly quick response as well. COVID-19 pandemic, before it was a pandemic, the virus was discovered as a new virus and boom, 11 days, the genome is out. And you had hospitals built within weeks to help isolate infected folks, right? You had these incredible measures. You had production on a, on a mass scale be repurposed from auto manufacturing, from uh, manufacturing of all kinds to produce PPE, which the United States still doesn't have. Hey, try to go get a test right now for COVID-19 and you might have issues. I know I've had issues with that. So, you know, China eliminated extreme poverty in, in, in a rapid time, quicker than any country in the world. It's the first country really in the world to eliminate it altogether. And it did so in 71 years after being one of the poorest countries on the planet at that time due to imperialist exploitation, foreign domination, as well as, uh, you know, feudal, semi-feudal leadership uh, before the revolution. So the film's not about China, but I think it's important to just see how Don't Look Up reflects how these anti-communist prejudices, these anti-China prejudices, this anti-Soviet, this anti-all of it, comes together, this Cold War mentality comes together in a film like this to kind of negate any opportunities for global solidarity, which makes the Western left just that much less effective. So I'm going to close the review right now, because in conclusion, the film does a good job portraying the ruling class and it's incredibly insensitive, dehumanizing behavior and the way that the ruling class is just totally motivated by profit, by its own power and greed. And that, of course, 
is helpful, so to speak, in a mainstream popular film. It is important to kind of get that realism out there in an entertaining way. So I don't really have any criticisms of that beyond the fact that, of course, there were limitations given that the Bernie wing of the party is kind of responsible for this movie and they have a hard time with the Democratic Party and uh, they tend to lean more towards the, uh, you know, Trump criticism side of the spectrum. There was a lot of, I think, concessions to white liberal, neoliberal Democrats who don't want to see Bernie politics on on the film screen. So this, other than that, the politics in that way are fine. But for me, I think it's just the overall negation of social movement politics, of mass movement politics, of the class struggle, of internationalism, which uh, inevitably makes this film very limited in terms of what it will be able to accomplish. So with that said, that's the end of the review of the film and that took quite a while and i do have to go soon so unfortunately the joe biden portion of this will be cut short but uh while you're watching if you haven't liked the stream please do so like the stream and if you're able to uh, please do subscribe to my patreon or my Substack for uh, any amount uh, 